Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is the podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Today's episode is sponsored by the new book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion While Doing It. Just head on over to survivetheimplosion.com to get all the details. Again, that's at survivetheimplosion.com. Today's episode runs a little longer than normal, but it's a good one. I have filmmaker John Schieffer of brandxindustries.com, and his story real quick is that he made a feature film called Aglorhythm, if I can even pronounce the word correctly. (laughs) Anyhow, this film is about the hacker world. And because it's a long interview, we'll just dive right into it because you'll get more details about the making of Algorithm and the tremendous, tremendous accomplishment because it's put on YouTube uh, for free. So you can watch it for free for a limited time, but has garnered over almost one and a half million views. Now, this is tremendous because this is a feature film, not like a short or like a fan film or anything like that. This is an original feature film about the computer hacking world, and it's called Algorithm. And here he is, John Schieffer on the Film Trooper podcast. So cool, yeah. Hey, John, so thank you so much for coming on to the Film Trooper podcast. And, um, you know, I first stumbled upon you during one of the Seed and Sparks um, Twitter chats they have, or what they call chat, what do they call it, indie? I forget what they call it. Um, Film Curious. Thank you, Film Curious. Hashtag Film Curious by uh, Seed and Spark. And there's a lot of, you know, if anybody's been ever been part of one of those things, it's like this adrenaline rush because it's like, oh my god, it's like just you know tweets flying in left and right, and then you're trying to answer one person thing, and before you know it, everything's moved on to like another topic, and you're like, oh my god, I like trying to keep track of like what what did I answer or what did I say? It's totally you know. true. <laughs> but in the I was observing or I I was involved with a few of them, but the one that you're, you've been involved with the the last few and I saw a lot of your questions and that's how I got introduced to your film when I checked it out on YouTube and I was like, you know, you're almost like a million and a half views on your feature film, um, algorithm, you know? So if you can kind of tell us a little bit about your film and just sort of the journey of like one making it, uh, if I understand correctly, you're in Southern California, but you made the film in San Francisco, um, with some friends at uh, distant thunder i think uh they became friends oh okay uh, as yeah we were, as we were producing uh, a friend of mine sean hackett who is also an independent filmmaker um introduced me to the Mataresis who are who run distant thunder films and and uh and they read and loved the script and so they wanted to to be a part of it um the story for me kind of started uh, a long time ago when I was talking with a, a sociology professor friend of mine and he was saying that that the issue uh, that Bill Gates and a lot of the tech people were talking about is there weren't enough uh, people wanting to get into tech so that the US job market has to import a lot of skilled labor from places like India or China that just have a huge population and produce a lot of everything including really skilled programmers uh, and computer scientists, so we have to import a lot of that and um, the labor. And so, the desire of people like Bill Gates and the other uh, tech giants are to have the United States begin producing those kinds of people. And I was like, well, the fastest way to do that would be to make 
hacking cool again. And so that, that was, that was really what started it. Uh, that was my initial motivation. But as I dug deeper and deeper into it, I found things that were intriguing to say the least. Um, not the least of which is, uh, the, the revelations that Edward Snowden revealed, uh, in 2013, uh, were pretty much common knowledge to everybody in the information security world for the past like five years prior to that because there there had been people who had leaked that kind of information and when I found that kind of stuff out I was like there's a really good story that needs to be told about this and no one's talking about it and then everybody was (laughs) it was interesting because like because Snowden came out released the documents or 2013 near mm-hmm. the end of 2013 when did it's where, actually the beginning around March oh that's what it was thank you yeah. so where did um, the production time span from uh, for algorithm come in because I think I read somewhere wasn't it happening before around the same time or I kind of helped me out with the, my timeline yeah there. The, we, the, the pre-production started around I don't know like June of, of 2013 and okay. then uh, we we shot the film in September and uh, it was it was about a it was a 25 day shoot speci- or not the, like the whole thing but it was uh, for 14 shooting days so okay gotcha and then because all in the September. stuff so the Snowden thing was just like you know well cheesy pun but like snowballing at that part <laughs> like you know from like the like uh, you know springtime all the way to the end of the year I thought it would be that and that was yeah. the really weird thing as enormous as the news was and how shocked everybody ought to have been about it uh, most of the people that I talked to unless they're in the, the infosec world had no idea about Snowden uh, almost every single actor I talked to either hadn't heard of Edward Snowden or had no idea what he had done, and and there's actually a really good uh, John Oliver uh, episode <laughs> on YouTube that you can watch, and he and he talks and he he, he met Snowden and interviewed him, and he and like that's that was this year, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he goes into people ha- having like no idea what he's talking about, and he's like you have to make it relevant. He's like, well, the level of the 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 NSA intrusion, John's like, yeah, no one cares. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right, because he had the whole uh, bit about like his password is, mm-hmm. you know, he had like the most simplistic passwords. Is this good enough? <laughs> yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. So you guys cranked it out in uh, 2013, um, mm-hmm. you know, and like you said, you're like, I, like you're from Southern California, but you were brought up to uh, Northern California because they really liked the script and the and uh, they had a production facility or equipment or how, how did that relationship work out where they said, okay, yeah, let's make it in uh, San Francisco. So uh, I wrote the script uh, to be in San Francisco okay. for, for a couple of reasons. One, I, I recognized that uh, the Bay Area really is the tech capital of the planet. There are other places that are, that are getting pretty big, uh, Boston, Austin, um, some places in India are getting tech savvy and uh kansas city thanks to google fiber yeah um but but the bay area really is the central place and and every single major tech company in the world has a presence there and i said well if you're going to make a tech movie make it in the capital Um, so i did but the really interesting part for me was was the analogy uh the social analogy of there's kind of like two worlds that we live in as as humans there's the tech world and then there's the world that we think we live in, which is which obeys standard 
laws of physics and kinetic laws and like big strong guy equals the toughest guy in the room mm-hmm. and um and the architecture of San Francisco really lent itself to, the, to that kind of metaphor because there was an earthquake in 1908, I believe, that leveled a lot of San Francisco. And what the earthquake didn't kill, the resulting fire did. Uh, and so a lot of the buildings in San Francisco, the houses specifically, but even some of the buildings uh, are from that period and have since been labeled historic buildings, which means that they look like they're from a different time. Mm-hmm. which gives it that iconic look that everybody knows as San Francisco, like the full house intro look. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. or so I married an axe murderer. Yeah. Um, that look comes from that stasis. But for me, it's a perfect metaphor of like, we live in a world that, that's, you know, that's, that's post uh, Frank Lloyd Wright architecture. And yet San Francisco doesn't represent that at all. And so it's, it, it was really kind of like a visual metaphor that I wanted to go for. I see. Now you had this one near the end scene of algorithm is the where all the like the hackers friends with the main guy like that one house or one location that was like the empty room but that view over the yeah. day was ridiculous. Like I don't know where that was, but that was amazing looking. <laughs> well, here's the funny thing is uh is the people in San Francisco, one of the another reason I wanted to film in San Francisco is um in Los Angeles, it's really hard to shoot stuff. There are a lot of regulations, and it's pretty much a company, which means union town, uh, and they make it prohibitively expensive to shoot there unless you shoot guerrilla style, mm-hmm. which I didn't really want to do. I wanted to, I wanted to plan my shots. Uh, there are a couple of shot scenes in Algorithm that were guerrilla, but the rest, most of it's like really intentional, um, and that's not possible in. In Los Angeles, in San Francisco, their film commission is amazing. Hmm. Um, they had they had a deal where they would give us permits to pretty much shoot anywhere in the city if our crew was under nine people, meaning cast and crew was under nine people. Uh, we could get a, a permit for a hundred dollars a day. That's pretty good. And. Uh, there would be a 24-hour turnaround time from when we submitted it to when we got the permit. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, On top of that, at the time, we didn't take advantage of this because our budget was so low, but they also had a reimbursement project. uh, 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 Program? Program, yeah. yeah. Up to like $5 million where anything you spend in the city, they'll pay back Mm -hmm. um, for for permit fees, uh, shutting down streets, paying police officers, renting parks, renting uh production offices in the city they they they'll cover all of that up to a cert up to like five million dollars or something and so i was like the city was bending over backwards to make it film friendly interesting you know it's fascinating because it's it's so affordable yeah and and you have that peace of mind as opposed yeah. to the the guerrilla f- filmmaking style which is like all right i don't know we're pulling this off here go go uh you know you don't have control like uh you know like with the trash pickup day or anything like might happen we were like ah you know i just wanted the peace of mind like let me get the shot off or these scenes off and no that's like i said 100 bucks and there's an opportunity to even get reimbursed that's yeah. like some amazing news it's 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 incredible like i can't i can't praise the city enough um the police officers we interacted with the city officials on every level were just super friendly um the other thing is because San Francisco isn't typically a film town, mm-hmm. a lot of the residents, when a movie comes in, they don't demand money because they rec- they're they not familiar that 
with the idea that studios have a bunch of money, which is good because we didn't have it. Um, and so when we wanted locations, we would simply knock on doors of restaurants or houses and ask. Yeah. Uh, so the view that you were talking about, um, we actually asked across the street, uh, used to be Robin Williams's house, uh, before he got a divorce and then yeah. before he died. Yeah. Um, and so I knocked on the house of Robin Williams's old house and said that we were a film crew and we'd like to shoot here. Is that something you're interested in? And they said, no. So I actually just turned around <laughs> and looked at the other house, which was better for our purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, and we just asked that lady and she said, yes. Does she have an empty room for you or did you guys just clear it out? She was remodeling. Uh, it, that had been her husband's dream house. Like they, her husband's an architect and he had the dream house and his hope was to buy the, the, the outside structure and pretty much gut the inside. So we came along when the inside had been, all of the furniture had been removed, but nothing had been gutted. Uh, and it was going to be gutted like maybe 10 days after we finished shooting. So the lady was like, pretty much do whatever you want in here. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I had the, I had to explain it of why there was no furniture. And I was like, yeah, the heat reference, but, <laughs> but it was just, it really was serendipitous. And the only real problem with that is that uh, if we needed to do any reshoots, we couldn't because the locations doesn't look at all the same anymore. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. You're like, well, not here the we outside, go. not yeah. the inside. It's all gone. Yeah. Hell of a view. <laughs> yeah, it was gorgeous. Let me ask you so, um, as filmmakers listening to this are probably going to want to know, like all the usual stuff that you probably get asked, which is like, okay, so uh, Aglorhythm is a feature length film. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, you're sh you've been able to sh uh, share it on YouTube for free for mm -hmm. a, a year now. It's been a year. Uh, it's been eight months. We eight months. well, well, uh, we released it. And I I released it originally for twenty four hours, um, kind of like testing the water mm -hmm. on July fourteenth, which is Bastille Day. Okay, and um, very fitting. Yeah, and uh, it went viral that day. Yeah. Uh, I didn't. I, I had a couple of, of tech people, tech blog podcasters who were supporting it, but uh, without any real media coverage, that day it went viral. Um, it got seen by the hacker elites of the world, mm -hmm. uh, which was really strange for me because, like the people I mentioned or had been heroes of mine as I was researching for algorithm, uh, now know who I am. And that's that's a surreal experience. It yeah, that's it's fantastic. It's wild, and I'm, yeah. I'm trying to like live vicariously through you right now. The um, uh, so so yeah. a, a couple of the people who discovered it. Uh, uh, one of them is a famous hacker named John Draper, and he's known as Captain Crunch, and he got famous for making what are called blue boxes, which are uh, boxes that produce an electronic tone that could talk directly to AT and T's dialing computers and let you make free phone calls anywhere in the world. This is way, way back in the 70s. Yeah, this, right? is, this yeah. is late 60s, 70s. He went to jail for it, but he also teamed up with uh, uh, two guys that whose names I guarantee you, you know. Let me see. No, I know this story, but go ahead. It's a great oh, one. Well, uh, <laughs> so he and uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak teamed up and were selling the blue boxes in Berkeley prior to their forming Apple Computer. So when John Draper found out about it, I think he told his friend Steve Wozniak. Mm -hmm. um, and then Steve Wozniak mentioned it on Gizmodo. And I saw that in your poster art on uh, on your site because it just says at top, um, 
let me just scroll down. I'm going to make sure I, I say it correctly. I mean, this is coming from Waz himself. Yeah. Couldn't take my attention away. Couldn't take my attention away. Yeah, you must, you're like, like that. After that, like everybody's saying, how do you handle the YouTube criticism? So I was like, Waz liked it. After this, everything's gravy. <laughs> I've only read like really good, or, um, really good comments or just good feedback on it. No, most um, of it's very positive. Yeah. yeah. It's still got on, on, on IMDb, it's got like a five stars. Okay. But on YouTube, it's got over a 90% approval rating. Let me ask you, I know that like, so like, like filmmakers, so what did you guys shoot it on? And you said it was a 14 day shooting schedule and mm -hmm. you shot up in San Francisco, but, um, people are going to want to know gear, you know, gear porn stuff. So what, uh, <laughs> what did you shoot on? And then obviously what was the overall budget? I've already read all this stuff on, I'll make sure people get the link to your site Sweet. because you have a nice blog that kind of yeah. shares your experience with all this stuff and Extensive, you break it down. Ongoing. Yeah. And you do a really good job of breaking down all the expenses, so I'll make sure yeah. people find that. Um, but just because we're here and people might yeah. be on their car or something, you know, listening, what did you shoot it on? What was the budget to finish I, this film? I, I had I had directed stuff before, uh, and that really lent itself to knowing what I had and what I could shoot and what would look good. And I and I had a, a camera, and I so it was about finding the right camera with the gear that I knew I could get away with. And if I was going to shoot in a city, I knew that like I can't be setting up generators or lights or having a big <laughs> crew because that stuff costs a lot of money real fast, which means that I knew that we wouldn't be shooting with any lights or with maybe, uh, I think there was a two by one LED panel uh, on one day. And there were some lights on the interior shots, but exterior, there was nothing, mm -hmm. maybe a reflector. And um, knowing that, I said, well, I have to have a camera that shoots really good low light. Uh, and at the time, there were really only two cameras that, that did that well, uh, the 5D Mark III and uh, Nikon. And I don't remember it because I don't, I don't have a Nikon. Right, They're right. great cameras. I, that's just not what I have. Um, so I said to the DP, we're going to be shooting on the Mark III um, because we need this for production value yeah. to get the quality it, at, at night. So all of the night shots that you see, almost none of them have any lights of any kind. It's all just real lights outside. There's a one shot like in the beginning, like the first 10 minutes, um, <laughs> where the, the, the protagonist is walking through this. It looked like a Southern California um, uh, neighborhood, but it was like this. It was, I don't know how you got the fog or the fog, and there's like only a few lights, but it's, it's, it was pretty amazing how the, uh, the imagery you were able to pick up from that one shot. So. That yeah, that that was actually San Francisco is also known as Fog City, so yeah. <laughs> fog just comes. Um, and and one of the producers uh, suggested having the car drive toward the camera, so that that light was artificial, but the fog was real, and it wasn't actually just a car driving towards us. Okay, and the rest of it was there were no lights, like it was just the, that's how the neighborhood was lit, and the five D was able to pick that up. So I said to the I said to Satsuki, uh, we're going to be shooting on this. And he's like, that yeah, I think that's the right camera for this project. He's like, but I highly recommend that we shoot raw. And I had never shot raw. I mean, I had I had edited some red footage, which is amazing and huge. Um, so I, I had never shot it. I didn't know really what its value was. Uh, but I took Satsuki's advice, and we shot on raw. Uh, it took the project from one terabyte which is what my first movie took, <laughs> yeah. to four terabytes. Okay. Well, that's and not that, bad. <laughs> well, that's just the raw yeah. files. Uh, it had to be transcoded three times in order to be usable.
So the whole project is about either seven or 11 terabytes. Wow. And in the, 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 you guys use like a magic lantern hack or something? To yeah, yeah. Okay. The magic lantern has them. Uh, the, it's a little couple, I think it's one or two guys. And they put out this firmware modification for the Mark III that allows you to shoot raw. So you're, you're basically getting ten, uh, 1080p, not P, because it's not, I yeah. guess it's P, uh, still images that are unprocessed and uncompressed. And it's it's the the level of detail and uh, latitude in post production is astounding. Yeah, I can only imagine. So, very cool. So the, you took you took all the post production yourself. Is that correct? Uh, everything but the music composition I did. Cool. So what was the um, now? You mentioned in your blog post that um, you went ahead and did a round of crowdfunding. And there's an interesting story because you said the experts or veterans uh, suggested for this particular project you need to go at this amount, but you had always initially wanted to go at another amount. But it was interesting what you were able to uh, to raise. So tell us a little bit of that story. Well, that story needs to be prefaced with another story, which is that <laughs> I, I, I ran a Kickstarter campaign prior to the Indiegogo campaign, and the Kickstarter campaign got to thirty four thousand. And I was hoping for a $50,000 budget, oh. um, but that was with a different script uh, and and shooting in Los Angeles. And so when that Kickstarter campaign failed, I was like, why did this fail? Let's retool everything and, and start from scratch again. Uh, but now I had some geek fans from around the world, and um, that segued into Indiegogo, um, which I don't like. I'm not a fan of Indiegogo at all. Interesting. Um, their their back-end analytics broke on the third day hmm. of, of my campaign, and then they never went back up. And when I asked the company to reimburse me, they're like, no, we don't do that. I was like, well, you charged me 10% for a service you didn't provide. So, um, Interesting. Anyway. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I figured that, that we could shoot for nine grand, which means that, that if we had $9,000, I could feed everybody and take care of any travel expenses that were needed. Uh, the smarter people suggested that I also have the ability to pay for perks (laughs) to to fulfill people's perks, which I couldn't do at nine grand. And also, uh, that I needed money for publicity hiring a press agent and for E&O insurance and deliverables. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I ran the campaign, uh, I, I ran it for 30000 which would cover all of that stuff uh, on top of the 9000 I knew we needed to shoot. Right. Uh, and I didn't, uh, all of that didn't come through except for the nine grand, which I knew we needed to shoot. <laughs> so the really wild part is that, is that even I, I, I mentioned that I didn't have the money to do any of the perk fulfillments and I would just get a job and make four grand to, to cover the DVD Blu-ray press and somebody just donated the four grand to cover it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, the blue. Yeah. He's like, how much do you need to cover it? And I was like, well, last time I checked it was four grand. He's like, okay, who do I make the check to? <laughs> well, that, there you go. You build an audience and no, who knows what happens, you know? <laughs> yeah. And this person doesn't want anything in return. He's just like, here it is. Wow. So that was that was that was serendipitous. 
Uh, and the method of distribution that I've used and will be using uh, doesn't require you know insurance because I'm doing it all myself. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting about all this new uh, direct digital uh, distribution platforms. Yeah, uh, Vimeo on demand, VHX, whatever, like a lot of them um, don't require the E and O insurance. And there's, I, you know, yeah, there, there's there's really good aspects in that the barriers of entry are completely gone. Uh, the really bad aspect is that it makes everybody think that they can just get out and do something when they haven't invested the time to develop a skill. Um, so you'll see a lot of really bad scripts, and I I have written a lot of those bad scripts. <laughs> so I'm not. It's not like an elitist thing. Like I am glad a lot of my stuff didn't get out. Yeah. Uh, until I made something good, uh, but I found that when I did have a good script that a lot of the people, including the DP and, and the producers, the Madaresis, weren't sure that Satsuki Murashige would sign up. Hmm. Uh, just because he's, he's, I mean, he's a full-time DP in the Bay Area doing mostly industrial videos, but documentaries, like he gets paid full-time to do this stuff. He has high-end gear. Yeah. Um, and as you could see, he's very good at what he does. Yeah. Uh, and so they didn't think he'd say yes, but he loved the script so much as did the Madaresis, as did all of the actors, uh, that they were willing to work for no money up front, just to be a part of something that's different and good. Yeah, you mentioned in the blog that um, you wanted to approach it as a profit-sharing opportunity, very much like the Lean Startup, or people yeah. working in the tech space that says, okay, we're all in this together, this is, we make a product, and we will benefit as a shared profit. So... Um, you can explain a little bit more about that. Yeah, essentially, uh, I, I had to. I I knew that that a nine thousand dollar budget is not an economically sustainable model. Uh, I have not been paid anything to do this. It's been three years of my life with no money. Um, but I couldn't ask Satsuki or Chris Panzera, who plays Will, or any of the other actors or crew, to work for nothing with no hope. On the on the pure chance that that if it sells, you know, I get to become rich and they get left in the dust. And I didn't think that was fair, but that's that's often how it's done in in Hollywood. Um, and I don't like that model. Uh, so I created a different model where I keep fifty percent, and the reason that I keep it, it, it I'll explain in a moment. Um, and the other fifty percent gets divided up among all of the cast and crew based on the number of days worked. So we take the number of days worked, add them up, so we get a total, and then uh, divide proportionally to the cast and crew. Uh, the other 50% I keep because if I did the day's share, I would end up getting 90%, and I didn't think that was fair again. On top of that, uh, I, I used some of my 50% to pay some of the post-production people. So Stu Kennedy, the composer, got some of my 50%, and... Uh, Stuart Dooley, the graphic designer, got some of mine, and uh, another producer got some for taking it to AFM and seeing if we could do anything there. But which I knew wouldn't work, but you know, you know, we tried anyway. Yeah. Um, so th what I, from what I can gather, so you you put this together, mm -hmm. and like your initial uh, testing, you know, like doing a soft release without a lot of launch or fanfare, just got viral. So mm -hmm. you kept it up. Uh, the, the oh, yeah. No, we actually took it down. Oh, you did take it down. Yeah, I took it down. Okay. Uh, I did a beta test kind of sales period about 
almost exactly 20 days later uh, to see if people were interested in buying it. And it made, I think, little little over $3,000, which to me was a dismal failure because I'm used to Hollywood money numbers. What I didn't know at the time is for an indie film selling itself online, making three grand in a month is actually really, really, really good. It's fantastic, actually. Yeah, but I, did, I, yeah. I, had, I, I, had never, I didn't know that. I, I was like, well, I didn't make a million, and this is basically falling flat. So I, I, we, we turned that off. And then uh, I had a, re- the, the, the really strange thing is the day that we released it, um, even after it was online, it was on every single pirate site. <laughs> well, she, yeah. There were pirated versions on YouTube, and the original video that they linked to from Gizmodo was to a pirated version on Vimeo. <laughs> and I asked the lady who who wrote the Gizmodo article to not link to the pirated version. She was cool and fixed it as soon as I notified her, and she didn't even know because yeah. nobody had heard of me or anything that I'd done. Right. They just wanted the movie, um, so she was cool and redirected. But, but. What I realized over, like, I was really mad because I was like, I made this movie for you guys and you're not even supporting it financially. I was, I was pissed. Mm-hmm. And I had this realization about, I, I had been thinking about movies as kind of like, this is my life. This is the career I want. How do I make this economically viable for me? And I had this epiphany about what kind of future do I actually want the world to look like? How do I want the world to be? And I realized that I kind of like the Star Trek future where everything's free and people pursue what they want for intellectual purposes. And I recognized that the pirates were actually living that life ahead of the rest of the world. And they had been pretty much since the advent of computers. Uh, and I, I read this amazing book called Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution. Mm-hmm. And in it, they talked about the sharing culture and how code used to be shared. Uh, a hacker would have to manually key in any program that they wanted to. And eventually, they just started giving their code away and improving everybody's code until they had really killer programs that worked and didn't have bugs. Um, but eventually... Uh, capitalism found its way in and the program started to get sold. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny you're talking about Wozniak and, you know, like that whole history of Steve Jobs and Wozniak um, and Woz loving to be part of those, commu- uh, whatever, computer programmer clubs. Mm-hmm. And they were just sharing. Everybody was just sharing stuff. And there was Jobs that kind of said, no, 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 we're not sharing it with, because that was again sort of Woz's character, his makeup. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's really fascinating to hear you talk about this. But yeah, uh, go on. So I, it's interesting because you did the initial sales. You got some sales. So you're right. $3,000 for everybody out there listening is is tremendous because on average, somebody who – a filmmaker who puts up a film onto iTunes, uh, who pays an aggregator to get their film on iTunes, but if they don't have a discernible genre or any discernible stars – or like, explosions or boobies. Yeah, those exactly. And algorithm doesn't have any of those things. <laughs> exactly. It's a, it's a smart person's movie and that you have. And the interesting thing is like for all the other filmmakers out there, the the revenue that they're earning on straight, you know, uh, EST, electronic sell-through, digital downloads mm-hmm. and rentals uh, through those platforms is anywhere from like 1000 to 5000 maybe. 
Mm-hmm. Like, so those, those are the numbers. And even films that actually have stars and that are on those platforms, you know, they're, I've seen numbers as low as like 10,000, maybe 25,000. I've know, heard, I've yeah. heard Netflix will typically pay between seven and 12,000 for the first year of an indie film. Yeah. That's, that's and that's right. Netflix. That's like, is, is that's everybody's Mecca right now. Yeah, and it's but there's not sustainable in that respect. No, not so. even close. But let yeah. me go on. Explain, like, so you did that, and then at what point did you ha- you had this epiphany, and you're like, okay, uh, yeah, I just realized that 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 this is that I was working toward a future that I didn't want. Like, I don't like the greed based system of Hollywood. I don't like that people have to be enslaved, and that there's a hierarchy of of rich and poor. And I want there to be equality, so that people don't have to suffer unnecessarily. Uh, and that I could facilitate this by giving the movie away for free on YouTube. Um, I originally had ads on it mm-hmm. for the first four or five months, um, and that made about twenty, I think, twenty-two to twenty-five hundred dollars in ads. And, um, and this I, is after like getting over a million views, right? Yeah, so, yeah. You, so like, that's views. crazy to think about. A million views, and like, okay, here's like 2,000 bucks. A million views was $2,000. Yeah, that, that, that blew me away. And I, and I realized that why should the advertisers get to annoy cool people who are watching my movie for, for, for free? Why should they get to annoy someone for, for 0.2 cents per person? Like, they need to pay more. And so... Uh, and it wasn't just like, I'm not making enough money. I just realized, I was like, this is not a good equation. Mm-hmm. I'm losing face by not giving it away for free uh, at the cost of, of 0.2 cents per person. That's not, that's stupid. So I took the ads off the beginning um, so that people don't have to suffer for that. I would, I would probably put them back on if they paid like a dollar per person, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. What um so. so you have this experience, but you but the recent post is that you were able to you became profitable. It took mm-hmm. a while. There's a lot of money that went to expense because, like you said, it was nine thousand for the film. You were able to raise well that the film. Yeah, the film was actually the, all of the production and post production stuff. I already all had all the gear I needed. Um, was covered by the crowdfunding campaign, and that like I went a little bit in the red for that, but I don't really pay like that's just whatever. Um, but the, the real expensive stuff actually t- almost twice the price of the production because the Matarisis brought the movie in for less than what I had raised so that I could pay some of my pre-production expenses back. Um, the bulk of the movie was, was renting a theater in Los Angeles to screen it for the cast and crew and some other people I invited. Uh, I got invited to New York for a hacker convention and I had to get myself out there. Hmm. Uh, I was in the, uh, what is it, film festival. Um, Orlando, right? Yeah, I was at Orlando Film Festival, and that had to be covered. And and uh, another hacker convention, a, a really like elite government-level hacker convention in London invited me to come. And they covered some of my expenses in the hotel, but that still costs money too because getting to London and eating in London isn't cheap. Yeah. Um, so those ended up costing about $10,000, which was, like I said, twice what we spent to actually make the movie. Yeah. And, uh, because of the $3,000 in, in beta test sales, because of the ad, ad money, 
Um, and because of the donation uh, of, of the guy who gave four grand, uh, and uh, an interesting thing at the London Hacker Convention is one of the guys licensed the movie uh, for his tech company. It's a global tech company, and they licensed it as educational material. Ah, nice. To show people, to, to, to make them more security conscious. Okay. Uh, and so I, I, I said, I don't have a price. It's just pay whatever you want. And he said, how about the low hundreds? And so that's what he paid per screening at his, at his companies. So that covered a lot. And uh, there's been some small donations here and there. Another, there's a computer science professor at the University of Puerto Rico who licensed it to show to his class. Okay. And all of that stuff just added up. And when, when the licensing from the multinational tech company came in, uh, that was it, it was profitable. Not enough to, to trigger the profit share because I don't wanna write checks all the time, so I have a, a line where it's either annually or $100, whichever comes second, and then the check will get written and sent to somebody. Yeah, we can go explain this a bit more. I talked about some other filmmakers about this where I was explaining like, look, you can get somebody on and 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 not have to worry about you know all the nitty gritty about the back end stuff. Just make it a real simple like bonus structure. Like if the film, you know, um, nets not grosses, but say like it nets a certain amount, mm -hmm. and then then uh, at that certain amount, like a whatever, it's like ten thousand dollar net. Uh, everyone gets paid out this bonus structure, hundred, a couple hundred dollars, whatever it is, based off you know the agreement. So mm -hmm. that way it's like, and then you can cap it out. Like if save, save the film makes nets like a million dollars and everybody's like, oh, I want my, my, my slice of the pie. The, what you can do is put like a, a cap to it. Like, you know, for your services and, and share, uh, being part of this project, uh, you'll, you know, your cap is going to be a hundred thousand or whatever it might be. Or I don't I know, you know what I mean? I actually, like that. I, 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 that's, that's probably very standard. I don't really agree with it because I think that that creates a hierarchy um, everybody on set was very good at what they were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, there wasn't anybody who hadn't devoted their entire lives to the art of this this project. Eat from including the volunteer PAs, they were in film school at, at San Francisco State, and they wanted to break in. They were you know they were writing and directing their own stuff. Satsuki is a full time DP, um, and so I didn't think it was fair for them to put their faith in a project and to to believe in me and to not share everything and I see what you're saying and I and, and and I also know that that specifically the actors like there's a a lot of time you, you you're you, I think you're an actor right yeah I had so so there's a lot of time between gigs and 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 when a role comes in you have to get paid enough to sustain you for the time between gigs. If you want to get good, you like you have to devote yourself to it, and that means saying no to a lot of other things. So, these people need to eat, and pay rent, and have you know. I, I'm not talking mansions because the money ha algorithm hasn't made anywhere near that. But if it did, I mean, like, how cool would that be? To to everybody involved in the project is now a millionaire if the movie made like a billion dollars. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And I thought that would be awesome and game-changing for the industry. And it wouldn't have this top-down, greed-based structure. Everybody who's a part of it, who believed in it, and who worked their butts off, benefited. It, it would be a revolution. It hasn't been one yet, but <laughs> we hope.
But that's that's the intention, and like you said, yeah. you're going into it. Now everybody listens. It's like, oh God, Scott, way to go, greedy. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I'm just laughing. No, but I, I totally the, get where you're going the, with it. Yeah. The way I was able to do that is because I didn't have traditional investors. Uh, traditional investors would demand what you said. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. no way they would accept a profit share on the scale of what I was talking about. Um, and that and 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 it's very difficult to get a movie made without traditional investors. It's interesting um, when people ask so I, me. So your model is is way more the standard, and acceptable, and almost required by investors. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Like the. It's not you. Not <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it depends on like how I approach my movie. But this is this opens my eyes to this other potential. Like you said, like yeah, if, if we live in this world of abundance and we can um, allow everyone to profit share, f- however, for the life of it, you know. So somebody. Um, you know, benefits. I mean, for some actors, it's interesting. They, those who are lucky enough to land like a national commercial gig mm-hmm. can make the money out of the nose as something oh. so small where they they get a role in a, a, a independent feature film where they are, their acting, you know, challenges the muscles and, and, and a, a very challenging role is put forth to them, but they make very little. It's just interesting how the the dynamics work that way. But it'd be fantastic, like you said, if somebody gave their their talents to something they cared about to see that if everybody profited from it, it'd be uh, much better. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. I just was curious, like how you're approaching it, and uh, and for other filmmakers listening to this, how they're gonna about go about approaching their own project in terms of. Uh, when they don't have money to pay for the talent, how can you construct a deal or a, an agreement that says we are all in this together and this is how we can profit from there? And I, I did like how you explained your how you would make the fifty percent because as I said, if you did it the way it was constructed, you would make ninety percent based off mm-hmm. the days. So you're actually taking less, but it secures you know um, some viability and profitability for yourself. Um, let me ask you: so with your experience. Uh, watching it take take a life of its own on YouTube with the amount of views because I yeah. saw like in your comment section you're like uh, you're posting up to this date we've reached this many views it's amazing like um, it is a, a, quite an accomplishment to get anything to get over a million views especially mm. a feature film because I've seen trailers or short you know short clips or films or stuff like that you know maybe get a million because it got viral or something like that but to have a feature film on YouTube playing um, to get over a million is astounding. Um, what was your reaction to that? And has any other people come in to talk to you about like um, the capitalistic idea coming in, like helping you sort of profit or re- adjust something to b- make it more profitable? Um, the really cool thing, like I said about the world nowadays, technologically, is that there is no more barrier to entry. Um, and, and I'm well aware of, of making a profit and, and, and those kinds of things. Um, right before we were talking, there's a program, uh, Adobe makes this creative suite, which almost everybody who's a filmmaker will know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes with Photoshop. It comes with Premiere Pro. Uh, After Effects, everything. After Effects, yeah. yeah, all those things. And that's what you need. Like A program like that that comes with all of those things is what you need to make a movie. Uh, I happen to cut it in Final Cut 10, but uh, there's the Creative Cloud, which is Adobe Suite with Premiere and all that other stuff. Uh, this uh, 
what was it called? Creative Suite 6, which they allow you to download on the Creative Cloud, came with a program called Encore, E-N-C-O-R-E. Mm-hmm. And Encore is a fully developed DVD Blu-ray authoring suite. So I can, on my computer at home, build and design a professional Blu-ray that I can then ship to the press uh, DVD manufacturing company uh, that's indistinguishable from Hollywood on my computer at home. And so I plan to do that stuff and put it up on Amazon so that it's globally available at a at a price that's economically sustainable. Mm-hmm. And those the the like that's that's a possibility uh, for anybody who just wants to who's willing to learn the program and it took me, you know, a couple of weeks to figure it out and to do it. Like there really is no barrier to entry if you're willing to work harder and and learn stuff for all of it. Uh, capitalism included. Like Amazon has this great thing where you ship them a box of your DVDs, your DVD shows up on their search thing and they take care of all the fulfillment, including international uh immigration customs forms which i used to do for a living and i know it sucks to fill out one individual <laughs> but they'll take care of all that and all of the taxes and all of that stuff called uh, fulfillment by amazon or something yeah. like that. and it's a service they provide and they charge 50 percent for it which is sounds unreasonable but if your dvd's in best buy that's what best buy is going to take yeah same with walmart or any other thing so it's like it's a fair number it gives you access to a much larger audience than best buy ever would and it's and it's something that anybody can do um so so that that's kind of like the profitability part there there are other aspects that i'm gonna that's gonna that are gonna go for sale shortly as well but uh more to your point um when it went when it started going viral like there were seven thousand hits the first day the first was it day? I think the first day it was up on YouTube because all of the uh, tech podcasters and some of the major tech Twitter accounts who follow me uh, mentioned it. Um, and then it dropped down. And then something that I can't explain and none of the ad execs I know can explain <laughs> uh, is that it gradually began to grow uh, consistently. And it didn't grow like a normal viral video. Uh, the way it grew was the way uh, word of mouth would spread prior to the existence of the internet. Hmm. Slowly accumulating numbers until it's just this flood of, of people. And, and I can't, like, it, it shouldn't have done what it did with the technology that we have available today. Um, eventually what happened is enough people were watching it and liking it that it triggered Google's recommendation algorithm. And some people have told me that there wasn't a place on any of their Google accounts where they could go and not get hit by an ad for algorithm. Interesting. Because Google wants you to like their stuff, so they're going to recommend stuff even if you don't advertise. So because of YouTube being a, a Google company, that they, mm-hmm. that's how they were recommending it to people in their stream or something? On Google+, on Gmail, anywhere the guy went on any of the Google things, Google was recommending it as something that, that, that would be watched. And it and accounted for over 45% of the traffic and pretty much still does. Yeah, wow. That's, cr- that's crazy. What kind of uh, expert, like what kind of a 
advice have you been getting uh, from some of the experts? I know that, like I said, we were talking about being on Seed and Sparks um, uh, Film Chat or Film Curious, uh, hashtag Film Curious. Um, what, what have you gotten from those conversations that give you a different perspective of where you are with your project, uh, uh, things like that? It's, it's, it's kind of hard because what I'm doing, no one else has ever done. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing it better than everybody else. And, and I don't attribute that to me because I have no idea how I did it. <laughs> I mean, like, I know I made a good movie, but, but like how it spread or did what it did, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. Um, I don't know that, I don't know that I could replicate it again. Uh, the only conclusion that I can come to that I can attribute to my own merits is that I, I, I really do believe, and, and I was shocked, uh, I'll get into that in a minute, uh, that if you build something good, that it, people will find it. Because the world is filled with crap. Mm -hmm. And most people don't see good things. And when people do, even if it's a cat hanging onto a string going around on a fan, like that's entertaining. Yeah. And people will f spread that on their own. Uh, and there are people everywhere constantly searching for something interesting. There are entire series of websites devoted to exactly that, including Gizmodo, which found algorithm. Um, oh, they found it. I, 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 well, they, yeah, I, I didn't, I, I, I never hired a press agent. Interesting. Okay. So uh, algorithm has gotten zero traditional coverage, uh, industry coverage. Mm -hmm. And and the only media out, major media outlet to cover it at all was Gizmodo, and it only happened once. Hmm. Um, there was a major news outlet that took clips from Algorithm and used it for their hacker commentary out of Brazil. Yeah, but they didn't credit me, and unless you knew what you were watching, you wouldn't recognize it. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> and they didn't pay me. Yeah, which is fine, but. Uh, the other thing that I didn't expect is that I, I, I recently picked up the the episode four, five, and six Blu-ray of Star Wars. Okay. And there's two really good commentaries uh, with George Lucas. And he talks about it. It's like he's he's a believer. He's like, there's, there's this idea in Hollywood that you have to cast famous people. And he's like, it's basically a marketing gimmick. It's like you, and he used Tom Cruise. He's like, you get Tom Cruise movie. It's like Coca-Cola. You know what you're going to get. Um, and, and he said, I don't subscribe to that because I believe that if you make something good, people will find it. That, mm -hmm. that, that, that the build that you will come thing is true. And I think that there are a lot of people saying it's not true. And I think the reason that they're saying that is because they're not producing good product. And they want to find an excuse other than the fact that they can't produce good product to explain the situation that they're in. Yeah, Charlie, um, Steve Martin was on Charlie Rose, and Charlie Rose asked him that. That guy's a genius, man. <laughs> well, uh, Steve Martin? Yeah. Yeah. His, his, his books are, are profoundly insightful. Yeah, so he's, you know, he's, he does it all. You know, musician, comedian, actor, writer, producer, author. But Charlie Rose asked him, about this thing about like how do you make it in Hollywood per se and uh, Steve Martin's reaction response to that he says what most people want to hear is like well this is how you get an agent this is how you get you know acting classes blah 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 because really all, all you have to do is be so good they can't ignore you that's it and because he says that if you can focus on being so good then all, all, all the other stuff just falls into place yeah 
that's it. And so when I was writing and making Algorithm, I, I, I said, I'm not competing with a, an ultra low budget movie. I'm competing with Martin Scorsese and, and Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. that's the level I'm competing against because when I release it to the world nobody's going to make the distinction they're not going to say oh well this is a low budget and so I'm going to cut it some slack they're going to say this is a movie and I didn't like it as much as Star Wars yeah <laughs> there you go <laughs> so if nobody else is going to make that distinction then I can't make it either right uh, and when you hold yourself to that level of standard I'm not competing against Scorsese because I want both of us to succeed um, but that's the standard I hold myself to. Like, if I can make it any better, if there's any place where it's it's weak, I need to make it better. Yeah. And 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 that's the only explanation I have. And, and and the more people I talk to, or the more people who are famous that I listen to, it's they really just did work harder than everybody else, and smarter, and yeah. and they got better. Like the what's uh, there's a there's a radio disc jockey mm-hmm. who who was on like one of those yeah, who wants to be famous shows Ryan Seacrest okay like that guy's a machine with how many things he's doing yeah it's a yeah how many different like, projects and then the radio show he does every day it's yeah or just Justin Timberlake practices singing his songs while sprinting on a treadmill <laughs> so that when he jumps around, he's not out of breath while he's singing. That's why he's so good. Yeah, and people dedicated to it. People just work their butts off and, and make better stuff. And because of that, they get further. And everybody wants to explain it to like, well, if you have Angelina Jolie in your movie, then it will do well. Or if you have this cinematographer or if you have that cinematographer... I made a hacker movie, which people weren't doing at the time. I made it as good as I could possibly make it, it happened to be good enough. Uh, and I, I, it succeeded and was liked by more people than a Hollywood hacker movie that came out at around the same time. Yeah, exactly. I actually made more money than they did. They lost money. <laughs> yeah, and the whole perspective of things. Now, it's interesting. If you want, We have like maybe like 10 more minutes. We could kind of wrap it up here. But I was, right. if you're cool with it, I was... Yeah, anything. What happens when I saw... Like I saw your uh, the tweets on the uh, the Seed Spark um, you know Twitter chat session. We were going back and forth. I was just you know because you were a lot of people talking to each other. Um, and I saw what you're working on from an outsider's perspective. I look at it and go, this is genius. First of all, the movie is well done. You know, it definitely has. It, I call it like a smart person's movie in a sense that, like I said, doesn't have all the uh, the spectacle like you said of the explosions, the tits, and the ass and all that kind of stuff that goes in, you know, that that is not that type of film. This is like getting into the nitty gritty of like of the hacker world and the larger picture of how it affects all of us. Um, when I was watching that, I was like, that makes sense from an outsider's perspective. Like you created news per se. So like Gizmodo is always looking for a new, they constantly need content to drive mm-hmm. their machine of their blog. And it was a newsworthy item because it dealt with their world, their audience. And like I said, and also there's a huge uh, hacker community that, you know, you know, attached to your film, especially having someone of the people, the heroes that you were reading about and to have someone like Wozniak, you know, say what he did in a, in a, in a comment is that that comment is worth more than gold than any sort of um, film critic, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> so 
I'm still high off of it, man. You should be. It's a huge compliment. So you're watching this, and I look at it from the outsider's perspective, and I see this, like again, for a feature film to, to garner almost a million, a million and a half views on YouTube. Is it's tremendous. still getting 7,000 views a day. Every yeah, day. It's, Since we've been talking, 300 more people have watched it. It's crazy. So like, so all this stuff happens. So then at Film Trooper, because the goal is to try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs or to discuss this, uh, you know, to create uh, as uh, Emily Best of Seed and Spark is trying to do with Seed and Spark. She's is, genius. Yeah, she is building something to try to create this middle class um, ecosystem for filmmakers. And, uh, and she's working outside the, the, the paradigm of the film markets or what's been traditional. So... Um, when I look at your situation, I my initial take was like, you know, after watching the film and all the stuff is looking at what online entrepreneurs are doing in terms of building these online businesses to support a lifestyle business. Um, I think um, since we're on a podcast here, most people might have heard the podcast Startup um, by uh, Bloomberg, Alex Bloomberg, who used to work at This American Life. It was like one of the most popular um podcast of the last you know year was this thing where people followed him as he went about building a startup where he had to go and get venture you know, VC money I mean since we were talking about you know Silicon Valley and the hacking world and you know um, there's this whole ecos um, whole culture of like people finding investment money like that's what they do like you find VC money you build like your product and you hope to sell it to some bigger entity that's sort of the capitalistic you know ecosphere that's been created but then in this podcast, um, this VC guy talking to Alex, you know, he's expecting to get uh, you know a large return on their investment, VC money, and uh, and he explained to Alex like it's not like you're, you know, it's not like a lifestyle business. And Alex wasn't sure what he meant by lifestyle business. And a lifestyle business was like someone who who builds a business around a lifestyle they want. Somebody could travel anywhere they want to go, mm. you know. Um, and not have a lot of over a lot of overhead, maybe no uh, brick and mortar store, nothing like that. And because of all the stress that Alex was going through, he's like, "Wow, the lifestyle business actually sounds really good right now." And the VC was like, "Yeah, but not with my money, you know." <laughs> <laughs> so this concept was like, okay, and seeing what Emily's doing with Seed and Spark to try to push this middle class living, uh, of all the studies and the things that we share on Film Trooper, um, it's like when I look at your situation, I'm like, "Oh my God." I look at it and say, if there's a way you can even add in uh, an opportunity to collect email addresses uh, very specifically uh, on your YouTube channel, that's so it's like, here's the movie and even just add the call action. I know you have like here, check out the behind the scenes, but there could be something where you just offer, like if you wanna you know, know more or get this free, like here's like a free ebook on how we made the film and how you can help with the cause of you know hacking go to this url so you create a mm -hmm. url that's like you know um algorithm you know freebook.com mm -hmm. so people are there and the only thing you do, they do is they enter their email address to get the free gift you offer but mm -hmm. to to enable them to start you start collecting the the email addresses is for you alone you're not spamming them you're not going to be selling mm -hmm. your list off to anybody it's for you to have a more uh, in-depth uh, personal uh, communication relationship with them um, on your own terms through the email um, basically it's email marketing not to be like you know creepy about it it's just it's a it's might be a more efficient way to to have that you might you might already have this but I'm just saying from the outsider's perspective I'm looking at that going oh my god you got this amazing traction with this film 
if you can just add like this call to action that brings people off YouTube, off wherever they might be finding it, onto your email list. And then with your email list, like all these people that are building these lifestyle businesses say that, that like, look, like I might have a, an email list of 10,000 people, you know, mm-hmm. um, but only 300 are actually really engaged. But the right. difference is, is like I provide such a, I am committed to giving them such great value at a certain price point. But you know that, that that's not sleazy. That's not like spammy. Yeah. Says these three hundred loyal people are like, you know what? I like what you're doing. I'm definitely going to give you you know hundred, three hundred dollars every year for what you do. Whatever you have to offer them something. But you can see how this business model works out, where all these online entrepreneurs essentially build an audience. They get people onto an email list, and then they offer even greater value at a price. Um, and a small per- percentage of those people on their list pay them and then it's the Kevin Kelly from you know uh, Wired magazine saying the thousand true fans if you have a thousand true fans in your email list that pay you a hundred dollars a year that's a hundred thousand dollars that's your middle-class living mm-hmm. and so um, it's actually quite like the average inbound marketing rate is anywhere from like one to three percent conversion rate meaning that there's a huge chasm of people that know about what you're doing or watch what you're doing to making that leap to actually buying something from you. So you already have like a million and a half, like say by the time somebody actually really, you know, months down the line, here's this interview, it might be at 2 million views uh, for your film. Um, the YouTube star, the super mega star, M- Michelle Fan, mm-hmm. who famously uh, was doing these makeup tutorial videos, like just how to use makeup and how to make yourself feel. Uh, yeah, she got a big deal recently. Yeah, so this is this is, this is is the business model, something that you can take away from it, but, but this is essentially what she did. So she did this YouTube videos showing how to makeup tutorials. Yeah. She happened to make one about how to do like the makeup for Lady Gaga's video. This mm-hmm. was like a couple years ago. The Lady Gaga video had so much traction, right, in Vivio. Some people are looking mm-hmm. it up, watching the video. And on the side, related videos. Was yeah, like I think this. her videos are among the billion Yes, hits. yes. So it was that video that took th- things took off viral for her. But because mm-hmm. she had already built a system in place where she was already producing a bunch of tutorial makeup videos, she just happened to land on one that took was like piggybacking off somebody else's like uh, you know success, which is Lady Gaga, which mm-hmm. is fine because what she did was not spamming anything. She just added extra value to the conversation already going on with fans that wanted to know how to do that type of yeah. makeup. Then she built her own loyal fans, like you said, billions of views, you know, over a couple million you know subscribers. Mm-hmm. So what she did once she had like all these subscribers, I think it was like something ridiculous, like seven million subscribers or something. Um, she just offered, hey, for $10 a month, you can sign up and I will send you a care package of this makeup kit stuff. And every mm-hmm. month I will show you how to use it. So about That's really clever. One, about 1% one to 3% of that 7 million subscribers start paying her $10 a month. 1% to 3% of 7 million was like somewhere like 70,000 people. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So she's, she immediately- <laughs> She's making 700 yeah. a month. Right. So then obviously- Big capitalism comes in, the L'Oreal or I don't know, whatever company, like makeup company, Mm -hmm. then basically white labels. They create a specific product, Etsy, uh, like these makeup products for her. And then she takes a public and goes built and becomes a billionaire. But the the premise, it's the premise is like you have right there, right in front of you. 
which is like after talking to you, after meeting you and, and listening to how what matters to you about this Star Trek, you know, utopian, you know, share, mm. you are connecting with that hacker world. You created value for the hacker world mm. to just all it is if there's a way just to create the system where you can take those million and a half, two million views eventually of what's gonna to happen to your film and get a small percentage of them onto your email list. There's so a the, so then you can offer product, you know, that's, that's a great idea, and I normally recommend it. Um, it absolutely does not work in this situation mm. for a very strange reason. Oh, yeah, tell me. And the reason is that the hackers are aware of information security, and they don't give out their information. Oh, my gosh, this is fascinating. So this yeah, is like so really just, just known your audience. It doesn't work at all. Interesting. Um, the side benefit of, I, I have done exactly what you said. Um, I have ways to sign up on the website, on the Facebook call to action. I posted it on Twitter, um, all over the place. And it just, there's there's no response whatsoever. Further, I've added that if people sign up before, or, or are signed up on September 1st, that I'm giving them the uh, writer's audio commentary to everybody who's subscribed. Uh, and it just absolutely does not work with hackers. Um, they just are not going to sign up. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. They don't want their email address known. And if they do, it's with a, a unique website <laughs> that I didn't even know about that has uh, that allows them to sign up with an email address for 24 hours, and then the email address dies. Um, what I did was able to do is that now they're fans of mine, mm -hmm. and I have I have become friends with some very influential hackers around the world so I can let them know what I'm doing. The other side benefit is that generally hackers are smart and skilled and those people get paid very well. So over 40, like according to Twitter analytics, like over 40 to 50% of my audience makes between a hundred thousand and a million dollars a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that I can perhaps I'm a, it's something I'm aware of in the future should I need to crowdfund again. That now I've proven that I can do something that they'll like, that's good, uh, and they're rich people from yeah. all over the world. Uh, and and that's, that's, that's cool. Um, the yeah, real, you, yeah. The, the, the useful thing to me is, is that it's, it's kind of like a system. I, I hope it does make money. Uh, but I talked to the producers and the actors, and they're like, we're very interested in exposure, and I've done that for them. Like this is—it's crazy how successful this is for what it is. Mm -hmm. um, I've talked to other indie filmmakers. Uh, indie Jen Fisher is—is is somebody you should. Yeah, connect. actually, She's no, awesome. no, she, she and I have, from the get-go. Yeah, uh, yeah, they were just up here in Portland since I'm in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, yeah. So what she's doing is is amazing too. She's kind of like she and I are a very similar mindset, but. Uh, Oh, I totally lost my train. I'm sorry. So you, you were talking about like their model, but like uh, what uh, you were talking to these filmmakers, but the, obviously it was leading to something where yeah. a different model or a different experience. Um, that's weird. I totally lost it. Oh, it's I'm okay. Sure it's I'll, I'm sure it'll come back. We were talking <laughs> about because Jen Fisher. Yeah, it's funny because with her film, uh, her, her and her husband's film. Um, um, oh gosh, I'm. I'm they have. I'm drawing uh, a blank, but they're doing their web series now, The Hole. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah The Hole's amazing. Um, man, that was, it, was, it was a cool idea, too. Darn it. <laughs> okay, wait, we'll come back. I, I'm sure it's going to hit you, because uh, like, we had talked, and um, 
you said that you had a friend that lived up here in Portland near the Oh Hudson. yeah yeah okay so 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 Jen Fisher had a friend she was talking to and she was going around Hollywood to get an agent and the agent said come back to me when you have a million views on YouTube <laughs> uh, and my younger brother who owns an ad agency he said you realize you can go into almost any studio or any production company in Hollywood and say my video has a million views let's do business yeah I made this on my own, it's profitable, we made it on time, it's good, and I can do it again with you if you want. Um, and, and that realization kind of has, has made me really rethink what's possible for me. So it's not necessarily uh, doing the kinds of traditional things because they just don't work with this particular project, um, but, but trying to find what does work and what I can do. So, so the next project I'm working on is, is similarly intelligent. Mm -hmm. um, although, actually, that's a mistake I made with algorithm, which is that it's so complex and so cerebral that it's, it, a lot of people have no idea what's going on and can't follow it. And mm. I think that that's an error that I made. It isn't really an error because the movie itself is perfect for what it is. Yeah. But in choosing to talk about that, I couldn't do that without making it almost unapproachably intelligent. Yeah. Uh, but recognizing that is, is it's, it's just like, you know, you do something, you iterate until you get something that, that works really well. It so is, yeah. the next project will be as, as complex, but it will also be much more approachable. It's interesting because it's true. You have, like I said, what you've done is tremendous. A feature film with over a million and a half views is outstanding well because, you know. that that to me is wild like that's that's one thing and i and i and i like to recontextualize the numbers in to to because there's internet numbers which are kind of like well i didn't have lady gaga's a billion so i feel sad about myself yeah <laughs> um, but the other side is that that uh that if, if you recontextualize the numbers and think about them in terms of indie film uh Algorithm has been, it's, it's eight months after its release, and it's still every single day filling 28 movie theaters. Yeah. Completely. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a movie made for like $7,000 after Indiegogo and PayPal took their percent, $7,800. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's extremely rare, not just of indie films, but of any kind of movie, is that it's profitable. Mm -hmm. Like neither of those things get done very often at all, and I and I would love to stand and take credit, but it, 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 it I, I really only have that other attribution. It's just I I worked really hard for three years to the exclusion of everything else in my life. Hmm. Like my family and friends are like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "I'm working on algorithm." That's all I ever said for three years. That's all I'm doing. Uh, I I never I didn't take vacations at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't spend money on anything that wasn't directly related to algorithm at all. And that's what I did eight hours a day, five to six days a week for three years straight. Well, that, you know, it's huge congratulations to, you, to you. where you are, to what you have. And like I said, now you have this leverage. Yeah. And that's all that is. And like, you know, Hollywood is this, if you decide, if you decide to find the right partnerships in that world, um, 
like you mentioned in your blog, you were offered some stuff. You're like, this is a t- terrible deal. And like, I know you guys are in the middle of possibly some other licensing of the product. No, I, 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 I canceled that. They were, okay. they okay. were late. And I'm like, because I'm not beholden to investors, yeah. I can be free and do what's right instead of being desperate for money. So they, they said they would do something in six weeks and six months later they hadn't done it. And I was like, we're done. Exactly. And, you know, um, for those, anyway, I could keep talking, but I don't want, I want to wrap it up here so you don't take too much of your time. It's, uh, it's fascinating. Have more time so. if you want to go. But, <laughs> but I understand that podcasts are standard time, like you probably have Ow. an hour show. Yeah, jeez, I, I usually go late anyway. <laughs> no, dude, we can keep talking. I have, I have plenty of time. Well, it's interesting because the, you know, I just, um, gave us uh, a talk in Dallas, Texas, uh, about, at the Film Innovation Lab. Um, and we, I had to present on distribution and basically talking, like, like you said, it's, uh, we have the ability to just release it anywhere. Like you said, I have, the film is released to the world right now for free online. But, um, the, the big caveat for a lot of filmmakers is the ability to market, to let people know Mm -hmm. that it exists. That's absolutely the hardest part of making movies. Unquestionably the most difficult part. Yeah. So actually that's why like a year and a half, a year ago, I started this, um, film marketing Friday sessions, uh, on Google Hangouts. So all it is, is like an hour long, uh, Q and a session where I just regular filmmakers come on and uh, they, I'm not the expert. I did, they just ask me questions and I do my best to be that little, that guy that is enthusiastically trying to curate the best information for them in their situation. But one of the things that comes out of this is we as filmmakers like are trying to get this elusive like distribution deal. That's what's been kind of pounded in our heads with so much of the press and so many experts telling us is what needs to be done. But the the way the distribution companies work is that you know they have these film catalogs. They their world is, I've got a ton of different films. I've got a holiday film, family films. I got the you know the the girl in peril um, thriller. I got the action film, you know, or whatever it might be. It's like then I have to take that this list. Of films that I have in my catalog and shop it around to different foreign uh, film buyers mm-hmm. at the film markets. And maybe out of my hundred films, one or two actually sell. Mm-hmm. And maybe of those one or two or whatever, my handful, uh, one of them really takes off. Like, like they make a ton of money. Well, then I could take that, that money and then, uh, you know, pay off all the films that didn't pay, you know, <laughs> to do, do well. And so mm-hmm. like, that's how they hide it into, in terms of those Hollywood math, like all this, all these expenses have paid off from a success or one or two films that they had licensed. So you might be a filmmaker that goes, I got a distribution deal, but man, I'm with this distributor, the, the they've licensed it. They have like North American rights. I still have like, you know, home video or, you know, South American rights or whatever it might be. But Nothing's happening with my relationship with my distributor, and yet, um, you know, I, I don't see anything, and nothing's happening because they're, they're saying, "Look, of the catalog we have, you know, your film may be part of t- a, t- a ten film bundle, and so you get a small percentage, or the one that did really well is paying for everybody else, you know, or the worst part, if your film did the really is the one that did really well, you know that you're paying for everybody else. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's one of those things. It's like you hear these stories all the time. Because the economics of a film distribution company, um, you sort of operate this way. But things have changed so much that the, a lot of distribution companies are having to become, or they're going to have to adapt to become a marketing company. Mm. And that's why you're beginning to see something like Gravitas, uh, which is really sort of started off as like an aggregator, not necessarily a distributor, um, because 
they would just take films and they had the relationships, approved relationships with uh, like iTunes and Amazon and, and Netflix and things like that. So now anybody could pay an aggregator, like, you know, like distributor. You pay like a flat fee or you pay you know, Kino Nation. You pay like there's tons of them. Bitmax. I heard you, just, you can uh, actually pay a, a flat fee to Lionsgate and they'll distribute your movie. Oh like my, if is you that, half a million dollars, they will distribute your movie. Oh, half a million is their flat rate? Uh, that's what I heard. <laughs> it, it, it could go up. It may not be true, but. I, I, I wouldn't, like I wouldn't put it past you. a million, I would hire people and figure it out for you. That I is, because that's not what I do, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's true because you're thinking like, well, they probably saw the writing on the wall. Like there's a bunch of uh, A24 Gravitas coming in. Uh, they kind of play this hybrid version of like a pseudo distributor where they might try to get a few theatrical release or something, but mostly they're just slapping like their logo on top of an aggregation where you could do all the same thing meaning that all filmmakers could do is um, you were talking about the google system or the, the search system that that took over 45 percent of the, the views eventually because you were you you gain traction with your the number of views on your movie mm-hmm. and then that the the organic search engine t- took off because they were trying to help promote you know something that's already working yeah, well, I'm sure. I'm sure the whole thing is entirely determined by algorithm. There wasn't anybody there saying like algorithm the concept, right? A step by step process to accomplish something in computer code. Like there wasn't a guy who said, "Let's promote algorithm at Google." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, like I got a tour of Google, and they said, "Don't do search engine optimization. We actively fight against that. Just make good content, and your stuff will show up." Yeah, because once somebody's you know, tracking or actually yeah. using it or sharing it, then they're like, okay, that's the metrics we're using. And that's, we'll yeah, and that's there. what they do. So, yeah, it's funny. Because, um, like, I just wrote a book and last year. That you, dude. Writing books are hard. <laughs> I've done it. I suck at it. That's why I'm a filmmaker. <laughs> well, this is funny. I'll tell you what happened. Like, last year, uh, for the Film Trooper audience, I was saying, like, well, it, if film is becoming nothing more than a digital product, and books are a digital product, and the people in the book industry have been doing this for a little longer than the film industry. There's some changes that have happened with self-publishing in the book industry. And, you know, like we were talking about Amazon, Amazon has created this entire ecosystem to help promote and champion Mm self-publishing. And I said, well, let me write a book, like, you know, to see what happens if you write a book and you use some of these techniques, marketing and launch or product launch techniques, some of the experts. And so here's like the most basic version of what happened was the experts tell us that you got to you build like a, a, a launch group that's going to get your book for free in exchange that they just have to leave a rating review on Amazon. And like so, that's in the contract that you sign. That's part of it. Or is that just. No, no, no. It's, it, this is like we're talking about this is the world of Internet. So this is me saying, OK, I put a, I put a bunch of Twitter uh, tweets out. And saying, join up, limited space, kind of so cap basically out of hundred. Blurbs. Yeah, blurbs. So there's this post that I was just advertising, like, hey, if you want to get a, this free book that I'm writing, and the book is called originally it was called uh, How to Survive the Hollywood Implosion, but now it's but because I had this book launch group, I was e- immediately within a week were able to get, gather like a hundred people into this book launch group. So they knew I kept them up to date with my emails that said, hey, I'm writing this book. All it is is you'll get it for free, and I just want uh, a ratings review on Amazon when we launch it. So the problem was 
I went down this rabbit hole. Like, I didn't think, I don't know how long this book was going to take because I never writ- written one before. <laughs> so it just took way too long. Mm-hmm. And then when I was done with it, I realized I needed to create added value, not just the book. You had to have more to it. So mm-hmm. I, because I was podcasting, I was like, well, I'll do an audio book. I'll just, and is my cheap way of doing uh, as an editor. Yeah. So as I was reading my book out loud, recording it, I was able to make changes like, what did I write there? That's like, that's such bad grammar. You know, things, you know so, so I changed it. But it took forever. But I was sharing the experience with the book launch group. Then the book comes out. So now they have the, the e-book. The, they can read on their Kindle or their iBooks um, or a PDF. And they also can listen to it because I created this for them. And then I had to really promote and push them. Says, okay, I'm launching an Amazon this date. I need, you know, of the 100 people here, it's like, I'm just, can we just try to get 25 reviews, you know? And then people start, you know, like a 25-day challenge. Over 25 days, I just kept giving them updates uh, of, of where the book is or just like highlights of each chapter or what I call missions. And essentially, it was able to get it up on, you know, self-distributed on, publish on Amazon. We were able to get the reviews, you know? The interesting thing, though, in Amazon there's only some people that actually bought through Amazon, so it shows that like a verified purchase. Mm-hmm. So it's, a lot of people had to come in and say, "Look, I was part of a, uh, a promotional uh, launch group for this book, and this is my review." So mm-hmm. it just kind of clarifies that. But the interesting thing about that, the concept here is that if you're able to generate a lot of pre-sales, like what mm-hmm. I should have done is had everybody buy it through like a pre-sale. And not just necessarily give away for free. That way, Amazon triggers like, okay, this book is getting X amount of reviews and it's getting all these pre-sales. So Mm -hmm. once it goes live, then the the internal algorithms of uh, Amazon, there's there's so many things you can do if you if you choose to just work in the Amazon ecosphere where you're not selling it anywhere else. That they help promote your book within like their ranking system. So eventually, they're there I'll are, have to look into that. For yeah, the, it's the Blu-ray stuff. Yeah, so exactly. So the same could be done with a film, and the same thing I see happen when I talk to because in, in my podcast I interview like an aggregation company that was one of the first ones approved by iTunes, and they said that you know it's all about the marketing because like a film comes in, it doesn't have to have any distribution company, but if you want to get an iTunes, what you do is like you set it up so the the release date is going to be you know, this date or whatever it is. Wait, you don't need a, an aggregator to get on iTunes? Oh, you do, you do. But you don't need a distribution company. Okay. So you can just pay a flat fee to yeah, get yeah. onto iTunes. Yeah. The difference like is... Like or somebody. Exactly. Or BitMax, like the guys I talk to. They all, they're all pretty much the same price, you know? Mm-hmm. And what happens, he says, that if you can drive enough pre-sales to the iTunes page and then have people leave reviews on there... Um, then what happens, iTunes will check in with the aggregator. Hey, we see a lot of activity going on with this film. And then the aggregator on behalf of you could say, yeah, they were good people. They came in. They had their, their, your shit together. They, their marketing stuff, everything. They've been driving a lot of pre-sales. And like, oh, cool. So um, then iTunes will decide, like, we'll put it part of the new and noteworthy. So when it hits, you know, when it goes live, then like for a short week or two weeks, like your film may get listed as part of like new and noteworthy in the indie film section, mm. you know, and that's how you could do it without ever having a distribution company part of yeah. anything. And yeah. so then they then the engines sort of take over. But then when you look at what's what iTunes uses, they use a curation of uh, data from Rotten Tomatoes. So mm. they use that as their um, 
really metrics. So the one thing too is to figure out how Rotten Tomatoes works to just yeah. get a few like uh, approved critics to review the film as well as a bunch of users or power users within Rotten Tomatoes if you mm -hmm. are going to use the iTunes ecosphere. Yeah. You know, because Amazon runs on their own little platform, which is like all users, uh, you know, reviews and stuff like that. But if you look at it, you're like almost every platform has that to some extent. Like if you can drive pre-sales and reviews, enough of them to trigger, automatically trigger some the automatic algorithm search engines within that platform, you can do well because eventually it gets paired up with like related films that are that are the studio films. You know, mm -hmm. so somebody wants to look like, and nobody's gonna, nobody on the on the on the user end is gonna have any idea that you're not the same as Interstellar. Exactly, exactly. You're like you're I, right next door, and it's just another movie. Exactly, because somebody might type in like you know hackers with right. uh, Angelina Jolie or Black Hat, and then they'll say related films. It might pop up algorithm because mm -hmm. you've done the legwork of showing it has value, and so mm -hmm. somebody's like, well, this is, and you know whatever the 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 tags are that are associated with those films, you know, so somebody is in that world, wants to look at films of hackers that come across yours in either Netflix or iTunes or Amazon. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, if you're launching on Amazon, you could be, you could be part of that world where like customers also bought Interstellar, customers also bought whatever, Black mm -hmm. Hat or, you know, mm -hmm. hackers or the old eight, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But it's crazy because you do do a lot of hustle, but you know what, you already did it when you did your crowdfunding campaign. Like the same amount of hustle that goes into running a crowdfunding campaign is like the same amount of hustle you have to do to get the pre-orders. Like, like the, the same. That's daunting, man. The that, crowd, <laughs> like I was the only guy on the crowdfunding campaign and it was exhausting. I know. <laughs> so I hear that. Like I yeah, know yeah. the amount of work it takes. That's, you know, that's actually something interesting. Like knowing how much work a project takes is really helping me be very selective in choosing the idea for my next project. Because yeah. like if, if I want to do it to that level of skill, knowing that I have to, you know, spend a year writing the script, getting mm -hmm. all the research right, uh, you know, six months in pre-production and at least nine months per 90 minutes of video mm -hmm. in post, like the idea better be really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you're be something you're... I'm willing to sell three years of my life to make because I only get like. 30 sets of that mm -hmm. and then I'm dead. <laughs> it's so very metric, like it's a meta about it. But like you said, there's one way, like you said, you have this leverage now. So perhaps yeah. you can build a team because it's, it's value. That's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm working on now is, is yeah. the project I'm working on now is, is uh, a series. Yeah. And, and it is, it's, it's, and the cool thing now is like, it, there's this section that takes place in Brazil and uh, I wanted to know if there were, uh, are you familiar with the term telenovela? Yes. So I wanted to see if Brazil had telenovelas. And I realized I know people from Brazil now. That's right. Because there's a hacker who translated algorithm into Portuguese. That's and right. he's responsible for getting it into other languages. So I just, you know, I just, I am him and I was like, are there telenovelas in Brazil? And he's like, yeah, there are. And here's the most famous one. Here's the website. People love them. And now I have that information. And it's just like, and it's weird. It's really strange because now people that know that I, I, I was I, even developing the project with a friend of mine who is a professional writer. Like his, he's, he, he just signed a book deal, uh, Matt Wallace. Mm -hmm. And he and I are developing the next project. And, and 
he's like, I know you produce quality stuff and I want to work with you because I know you say you're going to do something and then you go do it and it's, and you do good work. And that's like, and people from all over the place are, are wanting like the, for finding crew now, it's not hard anymore. It's very strange. Yeah. It's well, a very big, big, like, cause, cause I'm used to doing everything by myself. Like mm-hmm. my first film, I did the lights, I did the sound, I did, ran the camera, I did, I, 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 one guy composed one song, but I composed everything else. Uh, I edited everything and I was like, to not have to do that anymore. So, so it's kind of cool. Yeah. There's no money yet, but. But it doesn't, like I, but it doesn't matter. You've, you've leveled up. You've, you've proved, like you said, if you're focusing on trying to be good at what you do, yeah, then that is your advertisement. That's your um, promotion of what, that's your leverage. It's like, funny. Like, yeah. Like the idea that, that money is, is, is a thing in itself to be valued. To me, I don't, I don't hold to that at all. To mm-hmm. me, money is an incredibly useful tool. But if you can do it without the money, then the money's not necessary. Yeah, it's you know because it's really just value exchange. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, I have I I I ran the numbers one one day just to, out of curiosity to see what algorithm would have cost had I paid everybody union minimums for the various unions that they may or may not have been a part of, and including myself as an editor and myself as a director doing post production, it would have been like a seven hundred thousand dollar movie. Yeah, but I did it for <laughs> you know one hundredth of that, just because you know there were people who believed in it. But now the idea of 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 having like I mentioned on Twitter that I was working on a series, and a guy out of New York's like, "Let me know what I can do to help," and he's like, he's an onset guy all the time. I think he mm-hmm. I, I think he's a grip or a gaffer or something, but but like he he would gladly fly to L.A. to help me out. Yeah, it's amazing just to, because you're putting out good work and you're committed to what you're doing and, and people are responding to your work, which is the, the, at core, the beauty of all this stuff. And like, we're, and you're able to build your own community, your own family. And it's, if, if you have that leverage of having an intimate or not like intimate, but like a very personal connection with uh, your community, nothing is going to, nothing can break that. Like, it's interesting because all these YouTube stars, uh, I'm watching them. They built their own audience. They built this huge following, and now Hollywood's coming in and trying to piggyback off their success. But that you you know these these YouTube stars are like, yeah, I'll do it if you you know the paycheck. It's fun, whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's like there's no pressure for them to be like that. They have to sign over everything to a, a, a studio because if thing if the thing flops, they don't necessarily lose their audience. I right. mean, the, these YouTube stars, they can go right. wherever they need to be. The question is like, is how much is how much of a crossover is there? Because uh, there was a really great web series for a while called Ask a Ninja, Mm -hmm. which was hilarious. Yeah, Uh, and then they wrote early days, early days of YouTube. I love it, and and they wrote a book that that absolutely tanked (laughs) and killed their brand. Well, here's the thing: I think that you mentioned about the crossover. You're right because. We, what, what it is, is it's the, uh, the breakup of the media. Um, for instance, we're in podcasts. We're talking in podcasts. So the idea is that in order to be really you know, well-known in podcasts, you promote within podcasts. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to promote a podcast like on Twitter where things are so fast. Because yeah. people are not in the mindset of going, I'm going to stop and gonna listen to this podcast, you know? Yeah. Uh, or like Facebook, you know? Like, but if you're able to promote in the ecosphere, the world of podcasts, that's... That makes sense because the audience there, 
to listen to podcasts are in you know iTunes or whatever Stitcher. YouTube is the way that the, didn't even occur to me. So yeah, so YouTube is like if you're playing in the world of YouTube, the they had just VidCon recently. All the vid, all the popular YouTubers know each other, and so they promote each other's work because people are fans of YouTube or on YouTube. So when right. somebody says, "Oh, check out," you know, uh, you know. John's work on algorithm, you know, um, I just, and so, oh, cool. Because like you, by connecting with somebody who's doing like movie reviews or something like that within uh, YouTube, it makes sense because they cross over. There's your stuff on YouTube. It's harder if all of a sudden, like I said, we're on a different platform. People are used to reading, you know, because like we have if people like to read blogs, you know, mm -hmm. the, that audience is more, more likely to click on buy this book at Amazon because I'm a reader or whatever it might be. Uh, so yeah, so in terms of like, you know, like you've just discovered that your audience is way smart and they're not the ones who are going to hand over an email address. So you're like, okay, so what, how do I leverage this differently? Because you could totally see if you had like Michelle fans audience mm -hmm. where young girls are like, yeah, sign me yeah. up. I want to know yeah, more yeah. about all these makeup. Yeah, tips. like a 12 year old girl is like, sure. Yeah, my no problem. My boyfriend's got my email. Why shouldn't you? <laughs> Exactly. My friend knows all my, my passwords. My boyfriend of the week. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so like if somebody's making, um, you know, whatever, a, uh, a very specific niche like zombie film, mm -hmm. there's people that are th enthusiastic, all these conventions, these underground conventions that are going under, you know, under the scope of like mainstream blogs and media, but they have a loyal audience. And you can totally see somebody like handing over their email for that and you can build a, an audience that way. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's what, probably why, like you said, like there's that crossover doesn't quite happen sometimes. Um, so. I think it's, pro it's probably really unique to my particular audience. Like I, I don't imagine mm -hmm. that's true with anybody else. Like you could probably nail the, you know, the investment hedge fund manager and he would give you the email. Like that's a, he's a billionaire. Yeah. He'll, he'll sign up for it. But the hackers won't. Yeah. They're just not going to do that. <laughs> no, no. It doesn't make sense. It's interesting because like you're uh, – because you're into the cerebral – like this, the thinking man's film like was great, which is – but and to look into that because you're digging into deeper, you know, social and cultural um, – you know, I was just kind of like reporting the stuff. That's the weird <laughs> part. It's like all of this stuff was already happening. Like the yeah. FBI kidnaps hackers and and tortures them and turns them onto their side so they'll turn on their friends. Mm -hmm. like that's real. Yeah. That's uh, and they hire them. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here yeah. it is. I'll pay you as much. Just that's exactly. We yeah, want they you on our, our side. If, if a fourteen-year-old kid can hack into the CIA, guess who's the CIA is hiring next? next the next. <laughs> They're like either you're going to jail for life or you're working with us and making a lot of money. Um, yeah, make, yeah, yeah. So there, there's like the elite hackers in North Korea don't live behind North Korea's firewall. They have free access to everything because mm -hmm. they could get it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and if North Korea pisses them off, they'll crash the firewall. That's crazy. And then the whole country gets everything. So they just hire them. They get. They have Xboxes. They have all the movies. All that stuff. Amazing. Just because like, the power structure is completely different. And you're right, because you're wondering like whether or not there's going to be a shift. And uh, anyway, sorry, it's it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. We can wrap it up since we're an hour and a half. I think it'd be perfect. Because actually, we, like the first hour of our conversation, we got a chance to talk in more depth about your production process, your your the message of the film, and all that stuff. And then like the last half hour, we were able just to riff on uh, other revenue models or the future of where you take something when you build such leverage as you have. So yeah. it'd be really fascinating to see 
what progresses for you. And like I said, you're always invited to come back on the show to share, to share like, hey, it's very generous. So it came back in a year. This is what happened. You know, we'll keep we'll keep tabs of where you are. So um, I get kind of I get kind of hyper focused in what I'm doing. So if you mm-hmm. see me doing something that that you think would interest you or your audience, let me know. And, and uh, like you're a smart guy, and I'd happily talk to you. Oh, thanks. Well, like I said, I, I really wanted to, you to come on because I thought what you've done was so impressive. And like I said, and I have some of the questions that you were asking and the scene spark chat stuff. I was like, I wanted to have at least an opportunity to ha- just talk to you. Like, hey, so and you giving me insight of yeah, it qu- doesn't quite work because the email collection doesn't work in this scenario because of these the audience that I have, you know, tapped into. Normally makes, it's yeah. a very good idea though. Yeah. Like everybody everywhere says you should do exactly what you said you should do. Yeah. So I was like cuz I looked at it like my god, that's amazing leverage, but now like I see where you can uh, benefit it, which mm-hmm. is maybe on a more private scale of like uh, finding like I said you may maybe only need like a few very wealthy patrons, mm-hmm. you know. Um, like I don't even know that's how it'll work. I don't know that they'll be interested in my next project, yeah. but they they do exist. Yeah, and they're very powerful people. So it's like I'm not too terribly concerned about getting hacked, and if I do, I can just let some people know. Yeah, that's true. This is the IP address that hacked me. <laughs> no, the, there's there's this IP address in algorithm mm-hmm. uh, that I that that was a botnet. It was like the world's most powerful botnet. Uh, I don't remember was the Susnix. Uh, no, it was, it was, it, that, that. Stuxnet was a, Stuxnet, a virus. Oh, okay. It wasn't a bot. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, I put the IP address and due to a clerical error, it was misspoken in <laughs> the movie. And it turns out that the IP address, uh, I didn't know, like, I, I was like, whatever, I'll just use this one. And the hackers found out what it was. And it turns out to be a TV in Germany somewhere. So, so the hackers are just like hammering away at this thing, trying to figure out what it is and, oh, and if gosh. they can break into it. And I was like, I feel so sad for probably this poor lady in Germany <laughs> oh, trying no. to watch Netflix and she can't because there's so much traffic hitting her. How wild. How it's just wild. really strange the way yeah. they think. How wild. Well, cool. That was a cool Easter egg. There you go. And you got more of that stuff coming. Yeah. Like I said. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, man. This is awesome. Well, thank you, yeah, for sharing your, your story and, and and all the details of what's gone in with it. And uh, I learned a lot, you know, um, and definitely want to just have this opportunity to meet. So uh, and it's good that you know Jen. Um, yeah, she's she, awesome. So cool. Yeah, I, you know, they've been up here twice to Portland, and, and my schedule just didn't line up with them. But I, I initially helped them get started with a local crew up here for the whole. So, uh, and Jen was like one of the first people that sort of uh, been following me on Film Trooper when I first started. So it's really cool that you guys are connected as well yeah she's good people yeah definitely definitely all right john well i will follow up with you later once this is all uh put together and posted and Sounds good. Um, we'll go from there but uh, congratulations on everything you've done and really looking forward to where you're where your this whole adventure takes you thank you <laughs> great have a good one i'll talk you to too, you too brother okay Ciao. bye so that concludes my interview with filmmaker john schieffer of brandxindustries.com. Again, if you want to learn all about all the films that he's working on, all the projects that he's working on, he has a really great blog. Again, that's at brandxindustries.com. We're coming up to 100 episodes of the Film Trooper podcast, so if you like what you hear, please leave a ratings and review over on iTunes. Just go over to filmtrooper.com forward slash iTunes. takes you to the iTunes page, and your five-star rating review would be Greatly, greatly appreciated and very helpful to the podcast as a whole. Thanks for sticking around. I'll see you next time on the Film Trooper Podcast. Mm-hmm.